What a pleasure it was to speak to Wayne Hemingway this week, founder of the renowned Red or Dead and the innovative Hemingway Design. We spoke about how he built his businesses and the values that have shaped them. We get inside the mindset of an entrepreneur, discuss the chameleon-like ways of small business and how he's improving lives with fresh designs for town centres and new build housing. Wayne's journey from his working class northern roots is fascinating and with a powerful plan for change, he remains a true visionary. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street from the kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs. With thanks to NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Wayne, so lovely to see you again. We chatted a couple of weeks ago on my IGTV and the whole community went wild. So I had to ask you to be on this podcast and you so kindly have said yes. Before we start, I just wanted to ask, how has this time been for you personally? And where are you recording from today? Because your backdrop looks like you're in some tropical forest. I'm in our office, actually, in, in northwest London and um, just in one of the meeting rooms. And luckily, we've got a lot of outdoor space. We've got a, a big garden. We've owned this place for 30 odd years now. And um, Geraldine, my wife and one of the partners in the business, has uh, planted it up in very fine style. <laughs> You're looking at me sat against the back door of, of our meeting office into a, an outdoor working space, which we still use at this time of year, actually. I like to start this podcast just trying to understand people's childhoods. And I know that your father was called Billy Two Rivers and he was a wrestler and the son of a Mohawk chief. Still is. He's not a wrestler anymore, but he's a bit old for that. But <laughs> he's still the chief of the Kawanaka tribe in Quebec. Wow. What a childhood. He wasn't around, you know, he met my mum you know, in 1960, I popped out in 1961. It was a, a kind of a whirlwind romance. He was heavyweight wrestling champion of the world. Uh, obviously very exotic to a, a young woman from Morecambe. <laughs> he was only around till I was three and, and obviously not really around at all because he was touring the world. Wrestling is um, a form of entertainment. And you were brought up by your mother and grandparents, weren't you? Yeah, he's never been my dad. He's, he is my father, you know, he's got my birth certificate and all of that kind of stuff. And I am in touch with my family over there, not him. But yeah, so I was brought up by my mum and my nan and my pop effectively was, was my dad. Never missed out on not having my real dad around at all. Never bothered me. 
Well, it sounds like they did a sterling job because it was quite a free and quite creative childhood because you grew up with your mother. She was seriously into fashion. It was the 1960s, a cultural revolution. And I read your mum and your grandmother used to dress you up as Elvis and Tarzan when you were tiny. Do you ever think now when you look back that this time influenced you just from a tiny child? Yeah, I mean, when when you look back and, and look at pictures, it were quite clearly, no doubt about it, a proper working class family. But my mum and my nan and my pop just looked amazing. And when I talked to my mum about the pictures, you know, my mum's sadly gone now, as, as obviously my nan and my pop. But when I talked to them and looked at the pictures and... Especially when we, when myself and Geraldine started Red or Dead and we were looking back at their wardrobes and their pictures and found a full story of how they made all their own clothes and how they would buy secondhand copies of Vogue, rip the pages out, cut patterns. And looking at the photos of my mum in nightclubs and stuff, she was proper cool, you know, and mm. I've always known that real cool comes from working class, comes from DIY. And whilst she didn't make a career out of it and never tried to make a career out of it, I think it was fairly natural for me to follow that way, really. And I was the first to actually make a career out of going to clubs, dressing up youth culture and DIY. But the whole childhood was spent with sewing machines in the house from both my nan and my mum. My mum knocking up an outfit to go out in in that night and my granddad out in his shed making stuff, making furniture, growing things, growing the food in the backyard. It was never a family of television. It was a family of music making. And that's bound to influence you. Yeah. Just totally. You know, we, I've not been a, a book reader. I've not been a telly watcher. Same as our kids. They've never grown up playing on video games or anything like that. It was always been about getting on and doing things with your hands and making things or dancing or something. It was always been about the doing and not the passive. And that's bound to have an impact on you. My goodness, I'm just sort of transporting myself back to your childhood. And you think of my son now and this culture of video games, the screens, all these sorts of things. And the tapestry in your household, doing work, moving, singing, being alive. I slightly worry sometimes about our young and how that's not necessarily happening so much. I do agree with you to an extent. And I'm really pleased that our kids never asked for a PlayStation or or an Xbox or anything like that. But I don't think by having one, it precludes you from being creative. Even young people can understand the balance and get the balance right. But it is up to parents as well to guide that a bit. Talking of childhood, you went on to do actually rather well at school. You gained 10 O-levels and 4 A-levels before you moved to London and you went to study geography and town planning as a degree before completing an MA in fashion. During this time, you met Geraldine and she was your childhood sweetheart and I know now is your wife of so many years. And the story goes that you headed to London together and you were desperate for money. So you cleared out yours and Geraldine's wardrobes and you took a stall at Camden Market to sell clothes. I'd love to hear firsthand this story because it's one of sort of dreams that are made from. Yeah, I I think I'll go back to that school thing. So I I was lucky enough to go to a fantastic school in Blackburn, Queen Elizabeth Grammar School. We'd moved to Blackburn and um, again, had no money, but there was two scholarships a year to go to a fantastic school. And for people on a low income, you could sit an exam, an 11 plus exam. And I was one of the two in that year to get that. It was literally on the highest marks. I got to go to a proper grammar school 
for free, which was amazing. And that gave me a fantastic chance. Through school, I was a lot more interested in going out to clubs, you know, from the, because of the freedom that my mum always gave me, because she always had that freedom and, and she'd done things from a very young age. At the age of 13, I was going to a place called Wigan Casino, which is the main Northern Soul club. And it was an all-nighter. It was crazy, really. My friends were 14 and 15. We were all young, but, you know, I was the youngest. We'd get the bus to Wigan and we'd get there about midnight, maybe a bit earlier than midnight, half past 10, something like that. And we would be there all night. And then we'd go to a cafe in the morning at about seven or eight o'clock in the morning and then get the first bus back from Wigan to Blackburn, which was about 10 o'clock. And then I'd go home and sleep. Within a year, that had come to the point where Another amazing, iconic nightclub had opened called the Highland Room in Blackpool, in Blackpool, Mecca, which was playing jazz funk. And it was just an, an amazing. So we'd go there and that would start at about eight o'clock on a Saturday night. We'd get a bus from Blackburn again, then go on to Wigan all night. Oh then punk came along, probably at the, well, at the right time in my life, but at the wrong time for studying. It came along in 1976. I was 15. So it was a year before what we used to call O-levels, but GCSEs as they're called today. And punk hit Blackburn in a really big way. You know, we had the Sex Pistols playing in, in Blackburn. We had all the bands would play there. And one of the punk nights was a Wednesday night and another one was a Friday night. So I was going out all week. And then all weekend, just not sleeping. So school for me was a time to catch up on, on rest. And it started to suffer, I think. And I remember getting reports saying that I was underperforming, I looked tired and, and all of that. But anyway, my stepdad, who never, we never had the best relationship, let's put it that way. I remember him saying to me one day, you'll never get anywhere. You're wasting this opportunity at this school that you were given. If he did anything right for me, it was that kick up the backside. Mm. I then realized that I had an ability to cram and to take in information and to store it. And so literally in the run-up to my GCSEs, I thought I'll prove that bastard wrong. And I literally got seven A's, two B's and a C, you know, before they had A stars and all of that kind of stuff in O-levels. I think it was the highest. And then when it went on to A-levels, you know, I got offered places everywhere. I was put forward to Oxford and Cambridge, which I obviously would never go to because it would just not have been me. But got to, you know, which is one of the top universities in the world, UCL in London. And that was all from the fact of just trying to prove somebody wrong. When I went to university, I had no desire for education. I chose London because it was London, because that's where I knew that I wanted to go and experience the nightclub scene, the bands, the culture. That's all that drove me. And Jodie and I didn't move to London together. Ah, uh, okay, yes. Her story is amazing. She'd left school at 15 with no qualifications whatsoever, nothing. I think she got a CSE, that was it, was one level down. A CSE, yes. And she got a grade C in art. And Jodie wasn't, you know, got in trouble at school, not terribly, but she couldn't wait to leave. So she got a job as a wages clerk so that she could buy fabric to make clothes to go out. She, like me, had been a nightclubber from a very early age. That was the main thing in her life, buying records, dancing, dressing up, you know, making clothes. Yeah. I came down to London. The first thing that I did, which I always planned to do, was form a band, the first of a series of bands. Geraldine came down not too long after we, we rented a flat. We both had £50 each. That's all we had to our name. And I spent it all on, a, on some rehearsal studios one week, Normally, we got the money back. All the band were on the dole. Normally, they would all pay me back. But that week, they'd all messed up and 
not been to interviews, all that kind of stuff. Got their doles stopped, couldn't pay me back. The rent was due. The rent collector used to come round to our, our flat and collect the rent in cash. We had nothing left. And Jodine had read about this market that had just started, part of Camden Market. We emptied the wardrobe of my old punk clothes. Punk had long gone then for me. Lots of secondhand clothes. I'd always worn secondhand clothes and adapted them. And Jodine, having made her all her own clothes, cleared her wardrobe out for stuff that she wasn't currently wearing. It was just done as a one-off. To pay the rent? To pay the rent. That's all it was. And we took 300 and odd quid that weekend for a £6 rent. Suddenly, we realised we had more money then than we'd ever had in our lives because, you know, £300 in those days, you know, back in 1980, 81 was, you know, a decent amount of money. Our rent was only £12 a week, so that would have paid our rent for a long time. We then just made sure we went to the market Every single weekend, I spent every spare second was going around every jumble sale, every second-hand shop, every auction I could find. And, and Jodine just sat there making clothes, opened a stall in Kensington Market, and the rest is history, really. It's unbelievable, way because I'm, I'm also just looking at you. I'm looking at photographs of you. So I'm sort of literally transporting myself back to the young Wayne standing outside your stall. You're wearing a fabric cap and a vintage cord jacket. You look... Pretty cool. and Only pretty cool. Extremely cool. Yeah, come on. Come on, Holly. I mean, it's coming from your DNA because your mum was exceptionally cool. You look so young and yet you had a number of stalls already. I mean, it basically just started, didn't it? Tell me about this huge order that came from Macy's. Yeah, so there's two sides to this. You know, number one, that jacket tells a story in itself, that jacket. That was a, a Lee Stormrider jacket. So there's two sides to this. There's secondhand clothes and there's the, clothes, the new clothes that Jodine were making. So we start on the secondhand side. As soon as we realised that secondhand clothes, people really wanted to buy them and it wasn't just a few of us who were in nightclubs. It was, sometimes you have to be in, in the right place at the right time. Being in Camden in 1980, 1981, when the secondhand explosion was really, really getting going, was fantastic. And we were in the position, number one, to understand what people wanted to wear because we were in the clubs all the time and we were doing it ourselves. And that's the best training you can ever have. We cleared out all our family's wardrobe, my mum's 50s and 60s stuff, all my nan's 40s, which they kept. And we sold all of that. And they were getting excited, even though we cleared them out, about the money that we were making. <laughs> Everything that I could find from jumble sales, from charity shops that was good, would just get snapped up straight away. And the margins were, were crazy. You know, paying 10p to sell something for £20 was just, you never repeat that in any time in your life. Yeah. And then it was my nan who and this is where family is really important. She asked the rag and bone man, and do I need to tell people what a rag and bone man is? Maybe I do. Maybe you do. So a rag and bone man was what used to, I think it probably still goes around some streets, but always used to come down our streets in the north with a, a man sat on a, a trailer with it being pulled by a horse shouting, rag bone, rag bone. And that was, you know, the rags were the clothing and the bone was the bone china. And then they would, basically they were recycling. They would take it away and make money from it clear the stuff from you, do you a favour, but make the money by recycling it. I don't think we used the word recycling then. It was just the rag and bone man. The rag and bone man, I remember from being very young, my treat was to give the horse an apple. So she kept that up long after I'd left home. And one day when she was giving the horse an apple, she said, oh, my son and my daughter-in-law now sell old clothes. Where do you take them to? And he said, oh, I take them all to these places called Mungo and Shoddy Yards. And they're all in Dewsbury. 
That's where the word shoddy clothing comes from. Oh. So she found out where these were. We went to visit them all. There were six or seven of them in Dewsbury and they were basically all recycling plants. We took examples. They were like Dickensian. Clothing would get weighed on a weighbridge and then it would go up this um, conveyor belt to this top of this um, shoddy mungo yard where all these ladies with their hair tied up in scarves would sit and they'd drop red wool down one chute white cotton down another, polyester down, and it would all end up going down there and get compressed into bales and recycled or sent away as wiping cloths for garages and stuff like that. But what we did is we said, right, we left examples of all the stuff that we wanted them not to put in the bundles and that we would buy them and we would pay the women for not putting them down the chutes and we would pay the owner of the Mungo and Shoddy Yard more than the weight that he would get for his. And it just worked a treat. We were filling two vans a week. Bear in mind, the 80s is quite a long time ago now. So we were getting 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s clothing by the absolute vanful. And even though we were paying like a, we'd give the ladies 50p for sorting a coat out or a pound for a nice dress. Some of the stuff we were selling for 30, 40, 50 pounds an item. And before we knew it, we'd gone from one stall in Camden to 16 stalls. And then when we added Dr. Martins to that and we started selling old Dr. Martins. Yeah, I was going to mention about this, yes. We got to the point fairly quickly in the early 80s where me and Jodine were in a race, the first one to take 5,000 pounds in their pouch. Imagine that being fresh out of your teens and you were taking 10 grand a weekend and the rent on the stall was no more than 100 quid. And that was just one side of our business. The parallel to that was the Macy's order, which you talked about. Yeah. Jodine took a stall in Kensington Market, which was this subdivided old three-story bank on Kensington High Street. And Kensington High Street, the two coolest streets in London were Kings Road and Kensington High Street back then. And Kensington Market was a, mi a, a heady mix of... Um, of uh, the dogs are barking, but you can only hear it lightly, can't you? I love dogs barking in podcasts. <laughs> so um, it was a heady mix of tattoo artists, people starting up hair salons. Was this almost opposite Hyper Hyper? Hyper Hyper was the same owners of it. Oh, right, yes. I know exactly where you mean. It was opposite, wasn't it? On the other side of the road, yeah. Within there were people like Geraldine took in her sewing machine and she was amongst lots of other, mainly women, but also men who, who were making mini collections. But there was also Boy George in there selling stuff with the band Zig Zig Sputnik. So many brands and, that went on to become famous and, and hairdressers that went on to become famous. My goodness. You paid 10 quid a week. You didn't need the bank of mum and dad. You just needed a tenner in your pocket and you went in there and you, and you traded. And anyway, Geraldine made a small collection of eight items, no label in it, no washing instructions, not her name. I remember the collection was based on a Russian peasant look, which was her favourite style of, that she used to go out clubbing in. As you do. <laughs> and then after about three or four weeks of being in there, I got this phone call from an ex very excited future wife, Geraldine, saying, we've just had our first wholesale order. And, and I said, oh, that's fantastic. Another shop wants to buy your stuff. And she says, evidently, they're, they're a really big store in I've never heard of them. I said, well, where are they? They said, New York. And I'd never been yeah. to New York. She, neither had she. I think the furthest she'd been was Torremolinos and the furthest I'd been was Benidorm. I think that's, you know, that was... So we got this order from Macy's New York. Evidently, they'd walked up the road from where London Fashion Week was taking place down at Olympia. We took this order and we were advised to take this order to this thing called the BKCEC, the British Clothing and Export Council on Portland Place in central London. Took it there the next day because we had no idea what to do. It was for 1,600 pieces. And bear in mind that Jodie just had one sewing machine and she could make three items a day on a quiet day. <laughs> but 
you know, we've always been brave. So she, I said, well, how are you going to do it? She said, I don't know. But everybody in the market was saying I had to take the order because this was a chance to start a, a really serious clothing business. So went to this uh, BK and he's saying, you know, who's your manufacturer? And we said, we don't have one. I said, it's her. So he, he must have thought we we're complete nutters. He said, who do you bank with? We don't really have a bank. We're not really a business. We've only just, you know, we only just started. And he starts telling us all about these things, that letters of credit. And, and it was all going phew, above our head. So what did we do? We do exactly what you do from our kind of family is go out, find a phone box. Obviously, it was way before mobile phones and phone my mum. <laughs> my mum at the time was um, not quite working as a waitress in a cocktail bar, but she was working behind the bar of the halfway house between Blackburn and Preston. She didn't like her jobs. What, what did she do straight away? She stuck an advert in Exchange and Mart, which to your young listeners is like eBay, to buy a load of sewing machines and overlocking machines. Uh, she said, right, I'm going to buy a load of machines. I'll find one of the empty units in, because Blackburn was full of empty mills. I'll rent an empty mill in Blackburn. We'll employ a load of seamstresses and we'll make this order. And she did it. My goodness. One of Jerry Dean's sisters left her job. I think she was working for Riley Snooker Tables in Accrington. All different parts of the family got involved. Uh, even my stepdad got involved. We, um, my mum hired this unit in Rowley Mills in Blackburn. We came up with the label Red or Dead. How did you come up with that name, Red or Dead? Well, the collection was a Russian peasant collection. Um, so that was the red. We've always been political and always been purposeful and everything that we do. And at the time there was marches taking place of which, you know, we were part of that group protesting against the potential third world war that was mm. potentially a nuclear war because Americans and Russians were at each other's throat uh, called the Cold War. That's, you know, that was what it was called. And there was a feeling that the Americans were being the aggressors on this occasion. And a lot of younger people were saying that if this carries on, we'll end up all of us deed. And so it was like saying, well, it's time to make a stance against these aggressive Americans. People were saying better red than dead. And that it was very provocative because Americans have always supposed to have been our you know, special relationship, as, as politicians always say. And here was a group of young people saying, but actually this special relationship, they're endangering mankind. So let's stop supporting the Americans. And, and it was a very provocative statement, better red than dead. And what I just love, Wayne, at that time, it really summed up this sort of anti-establishment feeling of the collection. And it was a fashion phenomenon. It was this true entrepreneurial spirit that you had and this sort of can-do attitude, you know, this love of the fashion world, music world. You had the naivety of youth because this is where the magic happens when you don't know how to do it, when you don't have a manufacturing plant, you know, it's your mum. And I just say to businesses, you know, it's that dreaming, it's that starting, isn't it? Would you say that's what you and Geraldine had? It was almost not knowing what was happening ahead of you that made it so full of energy, full of life. Yeah, it's that thing about having nothing to lose. Yes. It's quite a strong foundation, I think. And it's also, there's never a wrong time to start a, a business. But if you get a chance when you're young and naive and everything's exciting and it's all an adventure, it can be really powerful. And for us, we never felt that we were building a business. It was just part of being young. Mm. And so was, there was never a fear of failure because we'd never started out to do this. And because we were so young, if it had all had gone belly up, then it wouldn't have mattered because we'd got no plans in life anyway. 
when you're young, you've got lots of other young people around you. And it wasn't just me and Geraldine. It was a whole army of young people who, who were friends or became friends. And we we're all in that same situation about making your way in life. And here was a way of making your way without having to answer to anybody and making up the rules as you go along. And, and what young person doesn't want to do that? Mm. We're not talking about being anarchists, but what we didn't want ever to be, what I never wanted to be, was having to toe the line. Yeah. And luckily, we've never had to do that. There's norms of society that you have to live within and decency and morals and all of those. But we've always been brought up with those. So that's no problem. You know, when you come from families like ours, you've got that anyway. You know that you're supposed to leave this world a better place than you found it. You know that you're supposed to look after fellow mankind. You know that you're supposed to be kind to old people and dogs. <laughs> you know that you don't drop litter and, and you know that you say please and thank you. And you know that you let people sit down in, in front of you on a train and a bus. All of that's norm. So you, you have all that anyway, if you're lucky enough. The other thing that we were lucky enough is to have fantastic families mm. and family is probably sadly for some people who are not as lucky as me and Jodin have been but the cornerstone and the rock of everything about us is coming from good families and good families doesn't mean money mm. good families means people with values good human values In the last series, I gave you the chance to win a one-to-one -one mentoring session with me, and I am thrilled that I'm doing the same this time. Plus, there'll be 10 opportunities to win specially tailored business mentoring sessions from the NatWest Entrepreneurship Managers. This team have coached tens of thousands of startups and business owners across the country, so they know their stuff. To be in with a chance to win, all you need to do is sign up to the NatWest Business Builder using our code. The Business Builder is a completely free e-learning site full of information and advice covering everything from well-being to finance. Head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker for all the details. Now, as you know, each week we run a competition with NatWest, who give away their ad break to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to tens of thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. Bespoke furniture elevated to works of art. Room London is a bold concept in luxury furniture design that elegantly bridges the gap between art, fashion and furniture. Working with the world's most talented fashion designers and artists, we translate evocative prints onto sumptuous upholstery and showcase them within elegant furniture shapes, creating distinctive and original pieces that reflect individual style. A fusion of creativity and craftsmanship, every Room London piece is made with passion, imagination and unwavering attention to detail. All our furniture is handcrafted in England. Founded by two sisters with a shared vision for imaginative furniture design, their aim is to combine the beauty of a painted canvas with the functionality of furniture. Coming soon to the collection is an exciting collaboration with Matthew Williamson, so please do find us online, roomlondon.com, R-O-O-M-E, london.com. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be heard by tens of thousands of people, we've created more information on what we're looking for at our website, holly.co. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. I want to transport you to the point where you started selling DMs because... 
You were the first retailer to do so. And although now we're very used to this sort of silhouette of this clumpy boot, it was completely new at this time. And especially for women, it had an influence, didn't it, and a direction on the business because you moved into footwear. Shoes became a huge part of your brand. And one of the things that I so love about small businesses, and I'm thinking back to you at that time, is the way that you can be reactive and nimble, you know, so much more so than bigger brands. And it's really part of that magic, isn't it? That ability to travel light and to adapt yourself. Might you have any advice for small businesses about that strength of being a chameleon, being able to say, right, let's now sell shoes? I think that came because we were doing something that was a real passion to us. And that passion was simply going out. And that makes a lot of people smile to say, you know, you built a business on going to nightclubs. Well, yes, you know, that was the main thing that we liked to do as youngsters. You know, for me and Geraldine, that's what we lived for. We lived to go out and dance, simple as that. But we also lived through a time where club culture was moving at an amazing pace. If you just think about the, the years of, of me being a teenager, started off a, a teenager with David Bowie at the height of his powers, you know, with the Aladdin Sane tour was the first concert I went to on my own when I was 12, that will have been. So my teenage years started off with that and with Roxy music and with glam rock. People think it was a different era, punk and glam rock, but glam rock was at its height in 1974. Punk started in 1975 and came out of a lot of the people who were into glam rock and, and Roxy and Bowie. So that happened and there was this massive shift from the excitement of glam rock and everything Bowie and how Roxy dressed was just phenomenal and, you know, just so exciting to be a young man who could suddenly do things and dress in a way that young men were not supposed to dress. And then punk came along and that was a complete DIY aesthetic. And then straight after that comes post-punk and then the two-tone and, and the Dexys look and then new romantic. And, and then soon after that, you know, you get all the electronic music, which then led on to Acid House happening and, and all of that. And, and between that, you've got the Echo and the Bunnyman look of long overcoats and the hard times look of the wag club and the beetroot and these things were lasting like a year and they were massive shifts in how people looked. there was rockabilly revivals and so all of that was happening we had to change we had to shift because tastes were changing yes the music industry was shifting from one genre to the next and then three or four were existing at once and so you had to be nimble you had to be quick everybody was trying things and there was a designer called Azadeh Nalea who was this body conscious look and that became the big look. So we started selling on Camden tight fitting dresses, any that we could find from the 60s. And, and, and then on the end of the silhouette, we'd display them with a massive great pair of big Dr. Martin steel toe caps or the, the biggest looking Dr. Martins. And it just caught on. The clubs became full of this look of tight clothing and massive DMs. And then within about a year, there was on the front of Time magazine, Demi Moore wearing a, a dress with a pair of Dr. Martins. And it just, we had people like John Paul Gaultier coming to our stall in Camden. This was before Red or Dead became really big. So we had John Paul Gaultier coming to our stall on Camden, filling sacks and sacks. I remember in his stripy t-shirt and his sailor's hat, carrying big sacks of Dr. Martins that he would buy from us and take back to Paris for what he was, you know, before he was famous. My goodness. And there was Japanese kids coming over from Tokyo and buying. And, and the main thing at first was to buy worn DMs because there was a thing called the hard times look, a stylist called Ray Petri. Who, who was, you know, from Face and ID magazine. And it was about a pair of Levi 501s ripped at the knee, which then was radical. We were buying up old Levi 501s from America in bales and getting them dry cleaned out in Wembley and pressed. And then those MA1 jackets, those kind of zip up old American 
fighter jackets. And, yes. And then the next thing you have, these bros start adopting that look. And then every kid wants it. And they're, we're there selling it and thinking, how many pairs are we going to sell today? 50, 100. How many pairs of jeans are we going to sell? 200. You couldn't wrap things up fast enough. And so that was helping us fund Red or Dead as well. You know, yeah. Getting all of that secondhand street style correct was helping us fund Red or Dead. And we ended up with 23 shops with Red or Dead around the world and 300 and odd staff and 25 million turnover. But you know, we never had to borrow a penny because we were funding, we were self-funding it from being that chameleon that you talked about. As you just said, it, but two young people started Camden Market and now you go on to build Red or Dead. You build this phenomenon followed by so many famous people and it was the thing. But you sold Red or Dead in 1998 and then a year later embarked on a completely new venture, Hemingway Design, which is where your degree of geography and town planning must have come in quite handy because this is a design agency that specialises in affordable and social design, building affordable housing, which I want to talk to you about. Um, This is such a purposeful and impactful business, a true force for good in this world. And when we spoke most recently, we spoke about the Good Business Festival, which is very directly you said, and I loved it, you know, having purpose must absolutely be built into businesses and that you're an idiot if you do not do this. Tell me about this. Tell me about why it's so important to have purpose in your business. We learned this through Red or Dead. We were almost pariahs in the fashion industry because every collection would have a message. Yes. We worked with Greenpeace on environmental collections. Our first workwear collection was made in a full security prison, so full Sutton, I think it was called, in York, all for political reasons. Every single collection, most of them had a backdrop that was telling a story about something to do with society, purpose, environment. We were never proud to be fashion designers. We'd never trained to be fashion designers. And I think both of us felt we needed to tell a story and be political with a small P at the same time. So, but it worked for us. It was great. It alienated the likes of the Daily Mail, which any any self-respecting cool person would want to do that. So it alienated us against some people. It's very rare if you can be all things to all people. Sometimes you have to Mm. realize you know, what, what's in the mind, in the psyche of your followers and go along with them rather than try and be vanilla and appeal to everybody. So we weren't vanilla at all. We were disliked by some and loved by obviously millions because that's how we did so well. Yes. But we were never in the fashion industry for fashion. Yes. And there comes a time in, in life where we had four kids, three of them very early in, in our life, very young when we had three of them. And by the time we'd sold it and when we were 38, they were getting grown up. But we also realized there's other things in life that we wanted to do. And we wanted to use this purpose and, and our environmental thinking and our values. We'd done as much as we could in the fashion industry. And also we created a business with value. And it was sometimes it's quite nice to achieve that value and, and get money in the bank. Yes. Uh, that gives you the freedom. The Beatles were right. I don't think money does buy you love, but it buys the opportunity, doesn't it? It buys you freedom. Mm. You know, it buys you the opportunity. And, and so getting that money in the bank gave us the opportunity to start to then look at what else can we do? Where else can we make a difference? And Hemingway Design was set up to follow the purpose of Red or Dead, but to be even more purposeful, to be values led, to make sure that everything we did, we coined this phrase straight away in 1998, that design is about improving things that matter in life. And everything that we had to do had to be about improving things that matter. Through Red or Dead, we criticized things and then 
brought it to people's attention, whether it was nuclear testing in a, by the French in, a, in an atoll in the South Pacific, where every collection had something. Mm. We knew that Hemingway design had to be issues-based. And then if we were issue-based, projects would come along and we didn't know where it was going to take us. We'd no plans to go into housing. We'd no plans to go into events. We'd no plans to go into regeneration or brand or anything like that. But by people understanding what you stand for, things come to you. That's your marketing. The doors started opening. Yeah, that's your marketing. Yeah. We never advertised. We never advertised at Red or Dead. People knew what we stood for and that's your market. Gosh, I never heard that actually, Wayne. You're right. You know, by having that purpose, suddenly you sort of put your claim down, haven't you? And actually then sort of the world, the universe starts reacting to that and opportunities come knocking. As long as you're not just saying things and you've got to do the actions to back it up. Yeah. Yeah. When you scratch the surface, it's, it's real. And Hemingway Design obviously had sort of this mission pumping through its veins and you decided to change the way in which affordable homes were built and designed. And this led to your first development of 760 homes in Staith South Bank. I love this whole wimpification story. Would you tell that for us? So I read this article by Jeremy Clarkson, who I'd had the misfortune to sit next to at an awards dinner and see his behaviour. He is as bad as he comes across. You know, he didn't come across as a very nice person when I sat next to him. I won't tell the full story, but well, one day, if you ever want to hear it, oh, it yeah. take 20 minutes. It's a good story, but not a nice story. We've already booked in for Wayne podcast point two here. Yeah. Yes. So, so anyway, I was, there was this article that I read in the paper where he said that he'd seen this housing development that was the future of housing. And that, it, you know, he'd hated new housing, estate type housing, which I wasn't enamoured with either, neither was Geraldine. And he'd seen this one just outside Cambridge and that it was brilliant. So we just decided to get in the car and drive to this housing development and have a look at it. And we hated it. I thought we would. We just thought it was everything that was wrong, a gated community and just everything that felt like we wouldn't want to bring up kids there. Mm. We'd been seeing lots of inappropriate housing developments with lacking in green space on the edge of towns, car dominated, no public transport, having to drive to the shops, all the housing looking the same. So from a design point of view and from a placemaking point of view and from a societal point of view, it just seemed like cookie cutter ways of making money for a developer. Mm. So I wrote this article in The Independent and it coined the phrase, the wimpification and the baratification of Britain. I think it was in 1999 or 2000, so a long time ago now. And it got traction and I got asked to go on to Newsnight to take part in a debate with the major house builders. And Jeremy Paxman in that debate sided with me saying, I agree with what Wayne's saying, you know, we've put up with this for too long. The next day, and this is really important for small businesses. The next day, we got a, a phone call, I think email, that might have been an email because email will have been invented by then. So we got an email from the secretary of the chair of, of Wimpy. Now they're called Taylor Wimpy. He was called Peter Johnson. And he said, would we come in and talk to him? He wanted to talk to us. And we thought it was about defamation of character or something. You know? Oh yeah, I would say telling off. So I asked the question, so what, he wants to talk to you about, but he's got a proposition. So we went in and we talked and he said, I saw what happened on last night and you roundly beat the housing industry with, with what you were saying. And my daughters were watching it as well. Teenage daughter, I think 18 and 19 were his daughters at the time. And he said, we agree. We know the kind of houses that Wimpy buy and we would not want to live in one in the places that you build them or in the kind of houses. And also, do you know that 
with the money that you gave us every Christmas, the first thing we ever went to buy was Red or Dead because we followed what they stand for. And they've just entered your industry and said exactly what our generation feel. And that's why we followed them. And that's why you should work with them. And we did work with them. We got to build 700 nod homes that is today considered to be got the highest mark in so many national surveys. And it's been poured over by urban designers from all around the world. And it's one massive success story. It's been finished a long time, but I still go up there and go to the cafes and things. And it attracted just a brilliant set of pioneers in the first place who've built just a really strong community and it's matured really well and they look after it. And of all the things that we've done in our careers, it's the number one, you know, it beats Red or Dead yeah. because we'd never done housing before. Jerry Dean designed all the homes, but we paired up with a, another couple that are very much like us, a pair of architects, Mark and Jane Massey from Newcastle. And together as a team with Wimpy and with mm. various other people, we've delivered something that will be there for hundreds of years that broke the mold. You know, lots of places change things, but this has been part of the change. Housing has got better. It's still a long way to go to be a great industry that serves us all, but it has got better. And I'm very proud that we were part of that. And I'm ex exceptionally proud that we did something that was based on our values and not our training. year together with our friends at three we're working to make business dreams come true share your dreams on social using the hashtag holly and co dreamer and who knows what will happen three understands it's been a tough time for businesses so they're offering their business price promise a promise that if you find a better deal they'll beat it not only that, I love that they offer up to £500 of benefits from specialist partners to help your business thrive. Head to 3.co.uk forward slash terms for terms and conditions. Now, here's a short story about those that dream big and flew. If there's something I want, nothing stops me, says Calvin Klein, one of the USA's most celebrated fashion designers. Klein was born in the Bronx, New York, and spent his childhood with his immigrant father and Jewish mother. His grandmother was a seamstress. His love of sewing came from her. His mother encouraged his love of art and fashion. And as a teenager, he attended the high school for art and design. Klein dreamt of a future in fashion and spent his time sketching patterns and sewing. A friend gave him a small amount of money to start his business and he rented a workroom at a hotel where he sold women's coats. A twist of fate led to a buyer who was lost in the hotel wandering into his room and placing a $50,000 order. Klein began to branch out, cultivating a minimalist and streamlined look that would become his signature and cement his place in the elite New York fashion scene. Not content with his previous achievements, he set out to revolutionise the jeans and underwear market. Using provocative and controversial imagery, his campaigns made a huge impression and were completely in tune with the rise of youth culture. Prior to the 1980s, fashion advertising had been all about selling products, but Klein's ads stood out because they were selling a lifestyle. The connection with these sexualized campaigns changed the face of fashion marketing forever. Calvin Klein dreamt of a life in fashion and went on to establish what remains today one of the coolest brands on the planet. 
Don't forget to share your own business dreams on social using the hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. And to find out more about their business plans, search Three Means Business. Now, back to Conversations of Inspiration. By not sitting on the fence, by not being vanilla, and I think, you know, for people listening, that is the thing. You had this purpose and that opportunity knocked on the door. You could have me even made that up, could you, that that actually then happened? You know, this is by having that purpose, you know, you basically created the ripple effect. The opportunity came along and you managed to do something that's going to be there for centuries. It's a beautiful thing. Nearly every project that we do comes from being vocal, not just for the sake of it, but if we feel something, yeah. we're not motor mouths and we're not loud mouths. It's everything we say is, is thought out and considered. But if we feel that something needs saying, we'll say it. Mm. And you've got to find the right way of doing it. And obviously it's easier for me because I've got a public persona so I can get in the press, but other people do it. Other businesses do it by writing blogs, by doing podcasts, mm -hmm. you know, you can make your own noise. And if you do it and you're intelligent in the way that you do it and passionate, it is the best marketing. There's no doubt about it. When I spoke to Roger Wade, actually, founder of Box Park, we talked about how humans crave these community spaces. This is exactly what was at the heart of what you built. When we talk now, when we're talking today and some of the issues that we're facing, such as the high street and what's happening to the high street and these independents, I love that you said, actually, we need to stop using the term high street. It actually is about creating town centres. And that must have come from your townscape planning genre. And by the way, just a secret, I think in another life, I want to be a townscape planner. That's actually a love of mine. Tell me about what you're seeing. And you spoke about how millennials and Gen Zs are actually going to be those who potentially create what we call the high street, that new town centre. And COVID at this time, you know, the impact it's having. Do you think that this is literally going to start generating more of a vision that you see? So, yeah, I mean, Hemingway Design have been working on various aspects of towns and regeneration for, well, for 16 to 18 years now. We've worked on Blackburn, we've worked on all sorts of towns, and we work on lots of coastal towns, which is a speciality of ours. But right now we're working, we've just done a, a vision and a, and a start of a master plan for Andover. We just started on Kidderminster this week and Newbury next week, and we're working all over. And has this come from my degree in geography and town planning? Probably not. Has it come from the fact that you take in your life experiences and think about them? And if, if you think about when I grew up as a teenager in Blackburn, what was the town centre about? Well, for me and for just about everybody, the town centre was a place where you went and you got social. Town centre was where you went and watched the bands, where you went out dancing, where you met your mates and went for a potato pie and with gravy on as, as you do in Blackburn or where you met before you walked to Blackburn Rovers Football Club, where you looked at girls. And then as a result of that, when you'd been to see David Bowie and you thought, hmm, I liked his haircut. You know, when I had hair, I'd go and get my haircut and dyed his colour. When you wanted a cap sleeve t-shirt to go dancing at Blackburn Mecca, on a, the Golden Palms on a Sunday night, you would go to Clobber to get that. Everything was based around activity, social, leisure, experiential as the word that's used now. Mm. And the retail, getting your hair done, buying your clothes, buying the records, all of that came 
as a result of having fun. And town centres were always about fun. And when you're doing your house out, what's most important? The wallpaper, we do wallpaper and furniture and sofas. But what's more important? It's the place where the house is. And it's the family and the happiness that's in that house. Mm. The wallpaper will give you a short-term fix. And the sofas will are very important to have a, your backside to be comfy so you can sit and have a canoodle or, or watch telly or whatever, yes. or have the dog on your lap or your kids on your lap. All that's important. But there are more important things than that. Mm. And that's what we realise as designers. And that's what town centres are going back to now. It's exciting. You don't need Debenhams. It's sad for the people who've lost their jobs, but society will work out a way of gainful employment, or it might be less employment and more leisure time. They will will come out of all of this stronger and more purposeful. Mm. Society hasn't gone back. When it's gone backwards, it hasn't gone back for long. I think we have gone back a little bit because millennials, Gen Zs and Gen Alphas have been worse off than their parents, and that's not healthy. But we'll find a way forward, and that won't be the word high street, a load of shops that all sell the same stuff and mostly stuff that you don't actually really need. No. Secondly, you know, you've got to understand that societal values change. Whilst recycling was really important to my family, the concept of why we were doing it was not about saving the earth. It was about saving pennies. Mm. Simple as that. But now we know that we have to save the planet. We didn't know that back then. There's three generations now who know that from birth. Yes. Millennials, Gen Zs and Gen Alphas. Maybe millennials not quite from birth, but certainly two generations from birth. Mm. And the Greta generation, the Gen Alphas, you can be absolutely sure that they are not going to consume in the same way that enabled high streets to become so dominant in our lives got to do something different. And what that means is really simple. We make our town centres places of fun, of leisure. We want people living in town centres so that they can come out and enjoy the culture and the shopping. Yes. We want the schools in town. We've just got to do what the Romans did with their forums and surround our town centres with all the activity. And we've got to end out-of-town shopping. It really is simple. We, we can rebuild our town centres. Yes, yes, yes. And my last question before we come to the end of this podcast is I was lucky enough to be asked to be an ambassador for the Good Business Festival, which you co-founded and created. The vision you have for that, the vision you have for our towns, the vision you have for this country, you have this enormous vision for this festival. Please tell us about that. Yeah, well, the Good Business Festival is about the principles that I and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world hold dear to our hearts. And that's a society where business and the public sector come together for societal benefit. And we've seen that happening to an extent during COVID. I think now, if you're not a business that thinks about purpose, values, which include the environment, which include young people having a chance, which include looking after old people, or all of the things that we know are the right things to hold our society to account for, then you're probably not going to get on. And there was never an international celebration of the fact that business, from whatever sector now, there wasn't an international celebration of purposeful business. Mm. And yet every business that I know is on that journey or wants to be on that journey. The place to hold it is Liverpool, a purposeful city, a great city. It's part of the levelling up agenda by not having it this in London. And 
I urge everybody to have a look at the website, which is thegoodbusinessfestival.com. We launched properly on October the 8th, which it was great to have you part of, Holly. And we want you involved going forward. You're not going to be able to stop me. <laughs> so people can watch again what we did on October the 8th. And I, I urge them to watch the film. Please watch the film. To watch some of the debates, to watch John Sovan from Greenpeace. Dip in and out a bit and let us know what you think. And if you want to get involved, it is for everybody. It's not just for business, it's for the public as well. It's a movement that we're part of and hopefully we can be a, a major player in, in the good business movement going forward. Everyone listening, please go and check out the website, watch the film, join this because this is a massive vision and it is going to be huge and it's just started. So you can all join the beginning of this. It's just incredible. When I'm coming towards the end. I could talk to you all day. You've got many towns to go and plan. And so I need to not keep you away from that. Tell me, I've got two questions before I ask you for a favourite part of our podcast. What would you say if, if this whole world that you've just described so eloquently on this podcast was a roller coaster? I describe it as the ups and downs of building our businesses. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows? I think the biggest low probably that we can probably think about was we did a joint venture with the Goodwood Estate. I think this was back in 2009 and 2010, when we came up with this idea of doing this thing called the Vintage Festival, which thankfully is still going. And we do this thing called Vintage by the Sea in Morecambe and Classic Car Boot Sale in Kings Cross and various other places. And we also do a Vintage New Year's Eve at the South Bank, obviously not this year. But what it was, was it's kind of taking us back to our vintage days, celebrating the history of design, really, in a festival. And we did one in Goodwood and it, and it was amazing for the public, but we had the most miserable time and were treated so badly. It was just a partnership that we just couldn't continue and in a beautiful location, but the value Values really were too far apart. Misaligned. Completely misaligned. The, you know, our values of generosity and all of that just fell on deaf ears, yeah. And a lesson to us all, you know, you've got to share values when you collaborate. And tell me, conversely, the greatest high so far on this journey. Well, I think, you know, you, you sometimes remember the freshest things, but in terms of the business journey, I think the, the Good Business Festival, aren't I know we're all really proud of it. So that it's a current high. Mm. The state South Bank is another high. The work that we're able to do with things like when you go back to your towns that you're from. So formative years were in Blackburn and being able to go back there and do our projects like Blackburn is open and the National Festival of Making feel great. But also being able to, you know, annually do something in Morecambe with Vintage by the Sea in the town I was born in. Dreamland was a big high for us in Margate. Yeah. We were the people behind Dreamland and there's been loads. We're very lucky to have done so much and experienced so much and I think the final high really is that you know working as a family has been great you know this is this is a family business number one in terms of the partners but also Red or Dead was a family a, a much broader family of, of young people and, and Hemingway Design feels like a family with a common purpose and that feels good. What a powerful thing that is. And what a powerful podcast this is. It's going to help so many people. And I've admired you for forever. And I get to now talk to you. So this is one of my career highs. And so thank you, Wayne, from the bottom of my heart for sharing so eloquently, as I said, this mission, this purpose of yours, which I know is going to create purpose for other people. If they don't realise they need purpose, now they do. I'm going to hand over to you. We ask our guests to write a letter to their younger self and it's just been one of the greatest honours, Wayne. Thank you and a pleasure to work with you. So this is a letter to my younger self in Blackburn, age 16. So give London a go. Go clubbing or 
or to watch bands most nights. Keep remembering from those all-nighter days that there are better things to do than sleep. Marry someone who loves dancing, fashion, culture, seeing the world, and also wants to have enough money to enjoy all of this. Form a band, then form another. Go to every jumble sale you can find and buy up all the cool clothing, records, old mags and furniture. Sell it to fund the band and club entry fees. Try everything apart from drugs. Don't be afraid to fail as long as you've given your all. Don't leave yourself with regrets that you wish you had tried harder. Question everything, including structure. Can it be done better? Should it change? Keep believing that out of chaos and anarchy, great things can be achieved. Creativity and passion are the number one things that make ideas work. Without that, all the structure in the world means diddly squat. Don't forget to ring your mum, your nan and your pop. Learn from them and have a dog. Learn from them that you're only here three score and ten and make the most of that three score and ten. Keep playing sport, keep running, keep supporting Blackburn Rovers. Take everything in your stride. If kids come along young, then have a whole bunch of them while you are young. Don't be greedy, be kind and do what your mum always said and leave this place a better place than you found it. Keep a to-do list, tick things off, never write fucking letters. Brilliant, brilliant letter. It's not a letter, it's a list. It's a list, sorry, you're right, it's a list. Never write fucking letters, exactly. (laughs) Wayne, you're refreshing, you're just tonic and it is fantastic to talk to you and from us all and small businesses listening, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Before you go, don't forget that to be in with a chance to win a 90-minute mentoring session with me, all you need to do is sign up to NatWest's Business Builder. It's packed full of videos and advice to help you build your business and give you the tools you need. To find out more, head to natwestbusinesshub.com forward slash Holly Tucker. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.